It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast, I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, as Director of Television Danny Cohen looks set to leave the BBC, we examine the state of the channels he'll be leaving behind. As new detective drama River focuses on a fragile protagonist, I speak to the charity Mind about the representation of mental health in the media. And also on the show, why we all might be making fewer FOI requests, which podcasts are leading the way stateside, and we chat all things MIPCOM in the Media Quiz. That's all coming up on today's media podcast. And joining me today, back in our regular home at the Hospital Club, well, what a panel I have for you, the Dream Team. First off, broadcast consultant with the voice to melt a million hearts, it is Paul Robinson. Hello, oh Paul. Oh my goodness, I haven't heard that for years, how nice. Paul, would it be Mr Smoothie? Oh, and I'm going ma- to be Mr Smoothie, all podcasts now. Hello Maggie, how are you? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, heckling from the sidelines, as you can hear, what a pleasure it is to welcome back the Grand High Priestess of Media Writers, Maggie Brown. Hello, I'm glad to be here. <laughs> uh, now Paul, where haven't you been in the last few months, because you've been everywhere as usual, but you were at MIPCOM, which is in Cannes, when the rains came thundering uh, down. Yes, I mean, MIPCOM was dramatic this year because on the Saturday night uh, I was at a, a party, uh, as you do, of course, at MIPCOM. Work, of course. It was all hard work all the way. And the rain just came down initially quite heavily. And then in torrents, um, I got back to my apartment and the ceiling had come down. So I'm sorry, this is obviously, I know, a podcast, but there's <gasps> a picture of my ceiling. Wow. Uh, so you can see the whole thing came down completely. So I had to find a new place to stay. I mean, the really sad news is that 21 people died. The water was like a river. You could see cars and all you could see was the roofs of the cars the bonnets and the uh, the rest of the cars completely covered and there's a tunnel underneath the railway bridge at can where people sort of go underneath the bridge and that filled with water so people couldn't get out of their cars because of the pressure oh. of the water and they dr- they drowned they in their cars it was i mean it was tragic well a conference to remember for all the wrong reasons but we'll talk a little bit later about some of the ideas that came out of mipcom oh, there's none of that <laughs> it's just all flooding uh, and maggie you've been doing slightly more provincial globe trotting but you've been at the cheltenham literature festival uh, and hosting a session about uh, Dennis Potter, a discussion about him and his influence. It, it seems to me he remains the titan of kind of credible literary TV drama. What, what was the consensus? Who is the current Dennis Potter, if there is one? Well, the problem was really that Peter Bowker, who wrote Marvellous and uh, also wrote Blackpool, which is a television drama that used the same technique, having lip-synced uh, period songs uh, interspersed in the drama. He was supposed to be on my panel, but um, I think he's now the, such a hot writer that he's really busy 
busy, so he didn't turn up. But I had Dennis Trod, who was the producer of Pennies from Heaven, and also produced Dennis's very last work, Karaoke and Cold Lazarus, that was the posthumous work that partly went out on the BBC, partly went out on Channel 4. And I had the director, Piers Haggard, of Pennies from Heaven, who actually devised that method of marrying songs with an actor. This incongruous thing, which actually made quite a bitter story which ends actually with a man uh, having facing the hangman's noose uh, into something which was sweetened and became a massive hit and of course Potter then went on to Hollywood where they made a Pennies from Heaven film which was unfortunately not a great success but he did make a lot of money that way so no it was interesting there, there wasn't much consensus because I think one problem is that I think it shows our age in a way that I don't think anybody under 30 really knows who Dennis Potter is but I enjoyed it because something really did happen. He made, he broke away from the Kathy come home kind of, na- you know, feeling that everything had to be very natural and grim into something that could be a kind of fantasy and could television could do so much more. And that's his inheritance, which goes on to this day. It's the sort of authored pieces, which are now very much the hallmark of British drama. Yeah, which actually leads us effortlessly on to our first topic, today because there's arguably very few opportunities for drama that audacious on the mainstream channels at the moment and arguably one of the men who's responsible for that was the director of television at the BBC Danny Cohen uh, who's announced this week he's going to be leaving in the autumn Uh, now he's overseen as part of this role massive hits uh, The Great British Bake Off, Call the Midwife and Poldark, uh, although Andrew Pierce, uh, shit-stirring in the Daily Mail, was keen to point out he was also the man responsible for Snog, Marry, Avoid and F Off, I'm a Hairy Woman. Uh, Maggie, whatever Danny Cohen's track record, the BBC's in turmoil over charter renewal at the moment, so this isn't a great time to go. No, but I wasn't actually that surprised because I felt for some time that uh, he didn't... If you looked at the body language of... Danny Cohen and the top brass at the BBC. They didn't seem in sync. And uh, I'm saying this as somebody who's been observing them at the different industry kind of conferences. You mean literally the body language? Well, I think it's slightly broader. I think it's about BBC culture. This is what has been striking me as I think about this is that with Cohen going, where are the succession plans for the grandees who are supposed to run the BBC of the future? And we've actually had a breakdown in this kind of uh, training, which arguably John Burt succeeded in doing in the 1990s but since then the track record of either people being supposedly put into the role or people who've been brought into the BBC to be Director General Greg Dyke for example from outside Peter Fincham to be controller of BBC One and ought to have gone on to be maybe Director of Television David Liddermont before that, who was a, a big star at ITV, they don't seem to bed in to the BBC culture. So when there was a crisis over George Entwistle, they have to go and get back a BBC man, Tony Hall. When they have a crisis now over uh, who's going to run BBC Studios, which they're hiving off, they, they reach for Peter Salmon, who's moved everybody um, up to Salford. So it goes. And even now, we're seeing Alan Yentob today, well past, some might say, his prime at the BBC, but... Th- the creative director, uh, still the right-hand man of Tony Hall. So I think he is a loss. He was a young 
you might say, contender. He's had unrivaled experience, really, running both... Remember, at Channel 4, he was uh, basically a very senior person there. I mean, my dealings with him there were when he was in charge of Big Brother as it went out live, and he devised systems to monitor what was being said, where and when, you know, the sort of notes taken. I mean, he was really a hands-on person and big trees. So I think it is a loss for the BBC, but I think it probably is his gain. You can't really blame him, though, can you, Paul, in a way, for, for stepping aside? Because, as I was saying, making reference to Andrew Pearce in the mail there, I mean, the day he leaves, there's this article about how he's this kind of left-wing, metrosexual, metropolitan elite who has his Oxbridge wife and da-da-da, and he's prejudiced about this and that. Nothing really about the programmes that he's actually made, but things he commissioned five years ago when he worked for a youth channel. I mean, he can go off and work for Netflix or for Amazon in the States and just not have to deal with all that hassle, and probably for more money. Well, I don't think the Daily Mail is a contributory factor in him leaving, but I think um, what Maggie says is is interesting, and I think I broadly agree. There is a degree of scrutiny and accountability that comes with the BBC, um, and that's right, of course, given it's publicly funded. Um, And if he has a desire to go off and be more um, creative, maybe less of a suit, um, he'll be able to do that in an organisation such as those you've mentioned without that scrutiny. Um, I mean, he's only been at the BBC eight years, so he was on a real fast track. I mean, he was a very young controller of BBC One, a very young director of television. He's only done that job for two years, which is in a way is a bit too short. And I think we would have seen more good things you know, come from Danny. But I think Maggie's right. I think the thing about director of television is not really a creative job. Although you're actually setting the agenda for television, it's much more of a political job. It's much more about persuading the benefits of the licence fee, about managing you know, a very large creative community. Um, it's not necessarily about the commissioning. And I think maybe he might have been happiest um, at, uh, at his job as a controller you know we were actually you literally are you know shaping and managing uh, yeah, a channel his right. track record his track record will be seen as very positive i think um for him he's young he's you know 40 41 um he can go off and do many things and maybe it's time for him to go into his american adventure and you know work for hulu or netflix or an american studio or whoever it is um and of course you know he's not the first high profile person to lead the bbc in the last two weeks the other one being the senior vice president of digital at bbc worldwide right hand man to tim davy who's gone off to netflix Netflix to go and head their technical operations in the US. So I think you know the BBC is seen as a place where uh, creative content making is actually at its very best. Um, drama has been the main driver of all these new OTT services. Uh, having Danny Cohen there, you know, bringing some of that magic would be a very very smart move by one of these OTT providers. But is it a place that struggles to hang on to its talent? Uh, at suit level uh, because you know other places can consolidate on a global basis as Paul was suggesting to work for all these sort of trendy net companies uh, and the BBC can't do that well, I mean, television and, and the, 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 the industry is changing really, really fast, let's face it. And there's this massive American interest, as we know, in British television. My reading of Danny Cohen, actually, is that uh, before he was at the BBC, I know he was a massive fan of things like Dickens. He's, in many ways, a traditional Oxbridge graduate. And I think, in a way, too much came too soon. The criticisms of BBC Three are not really justified. He inherited quite a lot of those rather outlandish titles. I think he, he felt a lot of the, the proposals they put forward, for example, he wa- they wanted a BBC Plus One to help uh, boost BBC One. That was turned down. Uh, a lot of their plans are continually being held up or scrutinised. I mean, he's supposed to be the person who proposed closing BBC Three. Well, it's still under debate. It's clearly a difficult organisation. He's definitely criticised for organising a revolt by the uh, talent uh, against the government's moves on the BBC. All of this 
suggest- And the Clarkson effect, of course, well, too. Well, the Clarkson you know, is, I mean, is a major if, thing yeah, I mean, because if, of if its he was, commercial if he, Yeah, and if, he, and if he was denied the opportunity to take action earlier, which is what we believe is the case because Tony yeah. Hall said no, mm. you know, you, you don't mind that happening once or twice, but it happens several times. After a yes, while, you start to feel a bit ground down by it. Yeah. So actually what happens if he does, bit of gossip here, but if he does end up going to Amazon and he ends up being Jeremy Clarkson's new boss, uh, should Clarkson be worried about that? Uh, of course not, but I don't think he'll be going to Amazon. Oh, why? No, I don't think he'll go to Amazon think, either. Amazon's not the biggest gig going. It's going to be either Netflix or Hulu or it's going to be a Hollywood studio. I think he wants to go to an American broadcasting company. That's what I've, I've heard the rumours about. And why not? Or you NBC, see, we don't look. NBC or ABC. The I'd other say. thing is we, we don't know exactly what will happen at Channel 4 either. Because, for example, just think it through. Uh, it's had a fairly stable team for five, six years. And we've got uh, certainly change underway with a new chairman coming in and how long do people stay in those jobs as chief executive you might say they stay as long as they can or you might say they go on to other things too so there there will be available jobs um, going but I do think it opens up this big question of how you train the next uh, cadre of people to be uh, really really big players at the BBC. I think Maggie's right and the other problem is there is no obvious success at the BBC you know you can't say there's a director of television in waiting there are a number of candidates you know, Peter Salmon's been mentioned, Janice Hadlow's been mentioned, but are they really right? I'm not sure. Well, I mean, what it means is you can only be uh, a, a top BBC person if you've almost been a lifer, which is not a healthy situation either. OK, next up, FOIs. Uh, wherever you are in the country, freedom of information requests, or FOIs, are the weapon of choice for investigative journalists, whether they're on staff at ITN uh, or at an ultra-local news website. But... The government is currently consulting on changes to FOI, uh, with talk of increasing charges for requests and wider powers for ministers to veto sensitive material. Uh, Maggie, for those of us who perhaps read lots of stories based on FOIs and have quoted from them, I've broadcast about them, uh, I've never actually done one. What is the process involved in getting a freedom of information request? How do you go about it at the moment? Well, I've only done one and, and I, I didn't get anywhere, so I'm not really the person to ask, I think. I've, I put one in and uh, nothing came back. So To who? Uh, to the police? Um, it was when I was writing um, my Channel 4 history and now I'm trying desperately to remember, but I know I didn't get anywhere, which was rather sad. So you're um, already hitting brick walls. Have you ever done one, Paul? No, never done one. Therefore, it's no uh, no success, but no failure either. Okay, so do we know what the changes are that they actually want to well, make? Look, the freedom of information uh, regime has been going for 10 years, so it's a decade, although the act it's based on is, is 15 years old. I think a review after 10 years is no bad thing. I mean, most things should and, and are ought to be reviewed to keep them healthy. The problem with this review is that it seems partly to be an attempt to rein in the amount of freedom of information we get to change um, the rules. And that's how the questions are. There's seven questions sort of which are being posed, which they do seem to be framed in that spirit. Uh, And the other problem is uh, that... Now, it could be that there are things that need to be adjusted, but that's... From the journalistic point of view, that's what makes you very worried. The second, because overall, let's face it, freedom of information is a great thing, even if in the government's eyes it was inherited from a Blair government. The second thing is that the panel of people who have been put in charge of the review, you might argue, are it's perfectly balanced, so you have a peer from each party. 
uh, and you have Dame uh, Patricia Hodgson, who is the chairman of Ofcom. You have, so you have these grandees. But all of them, you might say, have uh, an establishment view of this that probably a little bit more restraint is a good thing. And this is why you don't have to belong to uh, the extreme paranoid wing of this to be concerned about it. The other thing that strikes me is, I know there's been a debate about this, but people only have a month now, till the 20th of November, to put in their responses, which is kind of a twinkle of the eye, really, in, in, in the speed of, of the modern world, given it's something that's so fundamental, if you like, to the way we, we have a free and open society. OK, so Maggie Paul says that it's fundamental. Um, a, do you agree? And B, is it always justified? I mean, And the thing that seemed to kick all of this off was the Guardian's constant attempts through the court to get access to the Black Spider memo, so-called, which is Prince Charles's scribblings about homeopathy and here are the ministers that I'm close to and all the rest of it, which actually, when they were published, weren't any great shakes, were they? But they did spend a long time trying to fight for the right to get them. Was that a, a step too far, that case? Well, I think the principle of FOI is important. I think it's critical that we have the opportunity to exercise FOI requests. Now, what's the purpose of this review? Uh, as Maggie says, you know, the outcome of any review is a function of those you ask to do the reviewing. So given we have a fairly establishment panel, albeit it's a distinguished panel, and obviously we know Patricia Hodgson very well from Ofcom and obviously her time at the BBC, I had the great pleasure of working with her, and she's a formidable and very intelligent, bright woman. You know, it does look like it's a very establishment point of view. Um, um, the government argue that uh, they have something like 30,600 uh, non-routine requests a year, which is about 120 per working day, uh, which is a lot. Um, how many of those are justified and how many of those are, are tyre-kicking? Um, the cost, though, is not huge. It's about £6 million a year. So if the government agenda is to try and save money, you know, they might save some money, but it's not going to be very much. It's going to be peanuts and it'll be lost in the rounding. So I think, I think we should let the review take its place. I, I share a little bit of Maggie's concern uh, there is a hidden agenda here, but I think ultimately uh, a review is sensible um, as long as FOI is retained. If there is some uh, additional fine-tuning to ensure that money, time is not wasted, that's a good thing. But FOI is vital to our freedom of information and to our democracy. I mean, one of the problems is that the executive, the government executive, have a veto, a right of veto. And this veto they tried to exercise famously with the Prince of Wales's ramblings to ministers and uh, th this was obviously overturned the bigger use of the veto there's been five has been actually to stop access to the Iraq war documents or certain cabinet documents and this has led to a debate which I mean one can uh, you know either it's uh, this is a very defensive review or it's it's a sensible review the question is what is a safe place where people of position and authority, including, you know, the cabinet responsibility issues, at what place can they have a completely off-the-record, free and frank discussion without it necessarily being, at a formative stage, being uh, asked for and, and put out in the public? The Supreme Court have really challenged this veto. So there does something would have to be sorted out, actually, yeah. at this point in time. It's a really good point. I mean, I think no one is going to question that where there's issues of national security, particularly relating to uh, terrorism, that indeed there needs to be some uh, control. Uh, but the question is, uh, along that continuum of, of that as being one extreme, uh, there's a big grey area, and that's exactly where we've got to debate. And, of course, that grey area 
areas where all of the hot air is going to be consumed. Let's see what the campaign comes up with. I think healthy scepticism is a, is a good position to be in. Well, the government are currently putting out their call for evidence. If you want to complete the questionnaire, you can make plain your views on FOI uh, via the link on our website, themediapodcast.com. Uh, right, news in brief still to come, but before we go to the break, this week saw the launch of a new drama on BBC One, River written by Abby Morgan and starring Stellan Skarsgård as John River, uh, a detective with mental health issues. A fractured mind, according to the programme website. Uh, If you think that sounds a bit like Homeland, you're not alone. But how do drama producers ensure a faithful portrayal of, say, depression or Asperger's or dementia? You could start by talking to Alison Kerry, head of media at the charity Mind, which is what I did, and I began by asking her what she thought of River. I think it's great that there's um, a flagship big BBC drama with an all-star cast that's actually looking at at mental health and mental well-being. And what's particularly interesting is that it's the the central character to the programme. And that isn't something that um, we we see that often. In the past, I think we've um, seen mental health in dramas but not necessarily for the right reasons. And sometimes you might find that it's a kind of a character that's just passing through the soap or the drama. Um, it's quite a two-dimensional character. It's not really, They don't really get under the, the skin of the character. They've got a mental health problem. And then, unfortunately, they tend to show them doing something, something bad or, or something dangerous. So it's really interesting to now be at a time where we're seeing complex characters, characters that are a lot more in depth and that, that we, we see the kind of the, the fragile complexity of, of the nature of that, of that character. We're trying to link that car to Stevie's murder, otherwise you chased an innocent man to his death. He jumped. His girlfriend is expecting a baby. She's already gone to the press. Hold it together. We're all struggling here, but I'll take you over a room full of those goons. Prove me right, yeah? The fact that he is imagining people around him is obviously affecting the quality of his work, but it sort of implies that in some way it's making his work better. It's making him better at his job in some strange way because he's able to channel his emotion into uh, detective work. And it strikes me that although it's very fresh and it's written from his perspective and you have sympathy with him, that is still a bit of a cliche, isn't it? For most people, their mental <laughs> ill health does not help them in their job. Yes, yeah, I think that that is interesting. Um, and it's the first episode, so it'll be really interesting to see how it unfolds. And I think actually, what also with this programme, you he seems to be experiencing some kind of hallucination, perhaps some kind of psychosis, but we're not, as yet as a viewer, we don't understand exactly what that is. In fact, you know, you could have watched the first episode and it could have just been that he was seeing ghosts and it was like the sixth sense. So you, we haven't really got, we haven't really got into into that yet. I think what is good is that you see an employer that is aware that there's something not quite right and that there, there's an employee there in, in, in Stellan Skarsgård that he um, is struggling to deal with the grief from his partner's death, quite a violent death, um, and that his employer is actually sympathetic to that and is encouraging him to seek some um, support for his mental health. Um, so I think it'll be interesting to see those scenes with the psychiatrist unfold as well over the next few weeks. Uh, although obviously it's the case that most schizophrenics, for example, don't go on to commit murder, some murderers are schizophrenics, and it's natural that a dramatist is going to choose a dramatic storyline, which might be someone with schizophrenia becoming a murderer. How do you get involved and say, 
we understand why you want to tell that story, but we'd like you to tell it realistically. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we we do get um, approached by um, soaps and, and drama producers, and they will come to us and ask for some advice about, you know, how they're they're going to develop their character, and. Yes, of course, when it's a soap, they want to focus on the more dramatic end of the spectrum. And we know that the vast majority of people with mental health problems are just living their life and, and dealing with the challenges in their life and are not going to be a risk to, to anybody. But the dramas like to focus on the, on the very extremes. And what we're trying to do is, is trying to influence their thinking, because actually it would be, I think, a, more unique to show someone living with schizophrenia and not going out committing any murders but actually living with schizophrenia and living uh, you know a, a full life with it and having friends and relationships and I mean I think a program that has really impressed me about mental health was um, My Mad Fat Diary which was the the comedy drama on Channel 4 um, and in that program the character of Ray Earl she wasn't defined by her mental health problem she had mental health problems but she also had you know fun with her friends and she was facing all sorts of things that, that teenagers face at college and that that was part of the story but it wasn't the only part of the story yeah okay so let's talk about some famous recent examples where would you put homeland for example on that scale because you've got a character there carrie who the audience identify with but i would say her madness for want of a better phrase which is how it's portrayed in the show sometimes is the feature of her character that if you were describing her you'd immediately point out Homeland's an interesting one. I think um, in the the first series of Homeland, I think it it was fantastic in in raising awareness about bipolar disorder and how that can affect someone. But also at the same time, it was again it was a central character to the program, and it was a character that was incredibly impressive, an attractive young woman that's you know incredible at her job. I have to admit, in all honesty, that after series two I think I gave up on watching Homeland so I don't know where it's gone since then but I very wise <laughs> the last series was good though it I understand it's kind of yeah it's kind yeah. of tailed off a bit but um but I do think that you know it did get people talking about bipolar disorder and and we know that when mental health is a feature of, of dramas it can start a conversation which is also a really good thing which reminds me of that thing you know which we're now used to hearing the continuity announcer you know if you've been affected by the issues in this program da 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 that's something that only came about in the last couple of decades, isn't it? And it, it is an understanding that when people see a, a, an incident displayed on screen that relates to their own life, they are going to be moved to action something in their own lives, arguably. Do you see spikes? We certainly do. And and I think that that can be really good. So, for example, last year after an episode of Coronation Street, it was a storyline about um, Steve McDonald and was experiencing depression and they put Mind's uh, contact details up after the programme and we did experience a surge in, in uh, visits to our website and contacts the next day to our info line and so we know that prompted people to seek support and you know I've seen emails from people who've contacted Mind and said I'm so grateful this story made me go and see my GP or it enabled me to have that chat with my mum for the first time because we could talk about it in the context of the storyline and that made it easier so we do know that it it does directly impact people and it it encourages help seeking which is fantastic so if producers listening to this are working on a drama at the moment or a comedy i suppose uh, or even a documentary that features mental health issues should they be getting in touch with you at what stage should they be getting in touch with you and saying we've got this content can can we work together 
Well, we'd urge anyone um, who's thinking about um, covering mental health to get in touch with us as early as possible because it helps inform your the way that you look at the script, I think, rather than just bringing it to us when you were on your final draft and just doing it as a tick box exercise. And the other thing it enables us to do, and something we've done with quite a lot of soaps, is we've involved people with lived experience of this specific um, condition. So whether it's someone with postnatal depression or someone with schizophrenia, they've been able to go and meet the writer or meet the director or even the actor or actress and and help inform the way that that um, script is going to be portrayed and how it's going to play out and I think it's really important that you are talking to someone who's been there because they are the expert they, they've lived through it and, and they'll be able to give you a more well-rounded uh, character than, than if you don't ask them one for support. And actually, whilst you're here, I should ask, because, uh, you know, having worked on uh, a phone-in that was happening in the middle of the night on LBC, often people would call us in a fragile state and I'd say, well, here are some numbers for you. And I'd not, to be honest, be absolutely clear at two o'clock in the morning that that person was going to receive help apart from, from the Samaritans. Uh, what is the support that Mind offers to people? Is there a 24-hour number they can call or is it just office hours? Well, our info line's available during uh, the working day, but Samaritans, we would always urge people to contact Samaritans because they are there 24-7. Um, but throughout Mind, we have a network of um, over 150 local minds across the country. So if you're looking for counselling, if you're looking for support with um, your, your mental health, you want to meet other people who've experienced similar things to you peer support can be very important you can access those things via mind okay and uh, if you've been affected by any of the issues discussed in this discussion uh, then you might be interested in the mind media awards which is coming along in a couple of weeks isn't it what's the genesis of those and uh, you know who are the big winners likely to be can you give us oh, any tips? i can't give you any tips on that but um the mind media awards have been going now for over 20 years and it started out really as a, a way of trying to encourage the industry the media industry to uh, to recognize that they were being weren't always handling mental health in the best possible way and we thought that you know media like to win awards they uh, seem to respond quite well to that and so we were holding up examples of best practice and trying to reflect that back and so this year um, the media awards takes place uh, 16th of November we've got Joe Brand hosting this year Uh, Joe um, you might remember has been a psychiatric nurse in the past so um, you know she's very interested in mental health and uh, we've got some great entries on the, the soaps particularly this year Coronation Street We've got Hollyoaks, Emmerdale, all all the big soaps are in, in the mix. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome back. Maggie and Paul are still with me. Now, if you heard our last show, you'll have heard my plea to keep the media podcast alive. We have run out of money. This isn't bullshit. I am thrilled to say, because of the support from a very small number of you, but a very committed group of you, we have been able to make a show this week. Uh, a quick look at our media podcast, Totalizer reveals we've now had, wait for it, 12 donations. Uh, so thank you to our 12 disciples. Uh, we will thank the first five of you at the end of this week's show. But needless to say, we need many more of you to put your hands in your pockets if we're going to hit our target of 300 donations. So if you enjoy this show, please pledge by going to themediapodcast.com slash dedicate. Uh, Paul, I know you've been looking into podcast sponsorship, and it strikes me, despite the massive growth in podcasting, you know, everyone's, oh, post-serial this and post-serial that. There is a challenge in the UK to find people and companies who will invest in podcasting. Well, I'll make um, myself donor number 13. So when I get back, the first thing I'll do is I'll go on the website and pledge some money. I think the issue is this. Radio as a medium uh, outside the BBC has struggled to find a funding model other than advertising. And, you know, we've seen advertising in the UK radio drop and it's now coming up again. But it's still a real challenge. And UK radio is not as well funded as it could be. And it's really completely failed to find another model. Now, when it comes to podcasting, the great thing is, of course, you've got complete accountability. You're not relying on some survey. Not that uh, Rajar is not a good method, but Rajar is a sampling methodology. So you sample and then you multiply up and you hope that is going to be the actual listening. And but, as an aside, Rajar isn't a good method. Well, no, Rajar is a good method. <laughs> Let HR is a good method, <laughs> but it is a sample and it's not the real thing. Whereas with a podcast, you know exactly who's listened, uh, how long they've listened to, and if you want to, you can find out exactly who they are. The problem is the advertising industry is not really yet properly geared up to exploit this. And so, you know, I, I went and talked to a few people about this very podcast and they say, yeah, very nice, you know, and they show the figures and they look good, but they don't quite want to make the leap between, you know, where they are now and supporting something that they can't sort of get their fingers around. The fact they can't see it being transmitted simultaneously to everybody in the way radio is, you know, one too many. This is people listening, you know, when they're jogging in the park or they're in the kitchen or they're on the underground or whatever they're doing. You know, it's people listening at different times and it's a, a great audience and a very powerful audience, but you can't convince uh, sponsors. So it is a struggle. So more work to do, but I think I think the industry will catch up. But, you know, we're sort of trying to do something that's yet not accepted really by the advertising and, and sponsorship industry. Yeah, it's a weird thing, Maggie. I wonder the role that the BBC actually weirdly plays uh, in the extent to which independent podcasters uh, struggle to find financing in this country because we are all weaned on the idea of 
quality programmes and now quality podcasts from Radio 4, 5 Live and the like being available for free at the point of use. Uh, in the US, they're used to public radio, they're used to pledge drives, they're used to the idea that if you want something that sounds a bit more intelligent, you have to pay for it. Is that fair, to, to, to lay it at the BBC well, a bit? I mean, yes, it's, well, no, I just think America's a completely different market. I mean, public radio is a marvellous thing if you're of a slightly more serious disposition than just wanting shock jocks. And um, whenever I am in America, I, I always listen to public radio. In fact, it's pretty much always on in my daughter's house in the kitchen. So I, I was really interested in this whole whole subject from, from that point of view. I don't know whether the BBC is a culprit or not. I just think the markets are very different. This week, the uh, US public radio station WNYC have announced they're creating a podcast production house. We know BuzzFeed are investing in podcasts. Vice are investing in podcasts. Uh, why is there, Paul, this podcasting bug uh, in the US where people are able to raise seemingly millions? You know, we've got the bloke from Startup documenting his ability within a few weeks to generate millions of dollars of investment for podcasting. Well, I think a bit as Maggie was saying, podcasting actually is a new listening opportunity. You can listen to podcasts when you can't necessarily listen to the radio. And as you walk around the globe now, whether it's the US or it's the UK or it's uh, you know in Europe, you see people listening to audio all the time. They're not necessarily listening to live radio, but they are listening to audio, and much of that is speech. So this is a new opportunity, and there's a new demand for it. I think the other thing that's interesting is, I mean, aside from the um, content chief there, a guy called Dean Capello, great name, isn't it? He said, this is the way we're going to become a much bigger content company, period, very American. It's also about protecting their staff. You know, they are under uh, scrutiny in terms of their, their financial resources. 70 million a year they need to run, and they have to actually rely on donations from listeners to make that work. Um, and they want to keep their talented staff, their presenters and their producers, um, presenters and producers, very important. So, of course, they see podcasting as a way of retaining that talent. Very smart if they can do it. They have, of course, got to raise 15 million. It's not just going to arrive, they've got to raise it. So, the test is going to be whether they can convince people. If they do, it may well be that might help us here back in the UK because we can use that sort of leverage and say, well, it's working in the States, now please cough up for the media podcast. Yeah, it's fascinating how these American podcasts as well are actually slowly taking away some of the public radio logos off their artwork uh, and creating shows that just exist online. I saw the BBC are actually doing that with their Radio 4 Documentaries podcast. It's now called Seriously... Dot, 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 with no reference to the BBC on the artwork because it's an international show. Uh, look, if this discussion has sparked in your mind, you know, any uh, small niggling uh, feeling that you might want to donate to us, please, please do. Go to themediapodcast.com slash dedicate. Uh, or indeed, actually, if it sparked a discussion in, in your mind that perhaps you work in a place that can help us in the future raise some money in some other ways, uh, do get in touch with us about that. Uh, OK, let's talk about some other news that's been going on. Channel 4, fighting back this week against government proposals to privatise the corporation. David Abraham spoke to the House of Commons Media Select Committee on Tuesday... Paul, what did he say? Well, what he said was that if Channel 4 was privatised, um, it would need to make a profit about £200 million a year. That's assuming a revenue of about 930 £950 million, which is the current Channel 4 revenue. So what he's saying is, to do that, you've either got to bring in more money or you've got to cut costs. And uh, fundamentally what that means is you change the nature of what Channel 4 is about. So what he said is, to do that, you'd have to actually put much more American content on there and critically a lot more entertainment content. So uh, you'd see Channel 4 moving away from its remit of being risk-taking doing innovative things, doing things which are not provided by the rest of the, the market and focusing on big audiences and entertainment shows to make its money. So fundamentally, privatising Channel 4 changes what Channel 4 is. Now, Maggie Brown, you are absolutely the Channel 4 expert. I know you've got a lot to say on this, but uh, 
Uh, as our friend Steve Hewlett would say over at the media show, briefly if you can, uh, what do you think about this? Could Channel 4 survive in the open market and maintain their public service remit? Well, the, the, the issue is really one of uh, if you want Channel 4 to be a different place than ITV, and if you want it to be catering as it does some of the time for minority audiences, hard-to-reach audiences, if you want it to run dispatches at 9 o'clock and 10 o'clock at night on quite difficult subjects. For example, it's been great on Muslim uh, issues and radicalization and uh, forced marriages, etc., and how to escape ISIS, those kind of subjects. Then you, you can't really see it operating in a purely, purely commercial way. Behind all of this is uh, a question of whether it should be just sold off. I mean, Abraham was asked what he would have to budget for if he was running a commercial channel, what would be the margin? And he said it was between 20 and 30% of Channel 4's revenue, which is just under a billion pounds a year. So, of course, that wouldn't necessarily eat into the programme budget, which is uh, about £600 million. So that was a big, big issue. Secondly, of course, he's concerned that if it were to be sold off, for example, or he, he talked about it uh, not being floated as a kind of uh, come and get some shares, tell Sid, but actually sold as a, an entity, which is when it would be most valuable, obviously, because you would get control of it, that it could be very easily uh, sold to an American broadcasting or media company, and that in the long term would change its whole focus. And there is a great truth to that, because even before ITV, whatever ITV's fate is, we have the example of it being able to change the kind of regulatory climate it's under. Now, it's, it's different to Channel 4 because Channel 4 is directly accountable to Ofcom, but we have seen ITV loosen its, its regional ties and its commitments. We've seen it stop doing children's original children's programming. We've seen it become very heavily uh, entertainment-oriented. That's the, that's, the, that's the downside. The plus side is, is that perhaps out of a, rev a review of Channel 4's ownership, something good can come out of this because it is a very strange organisation and over the past 32 years, it's changed from being completely subsidised by ITV companies and owned by the regulator to be, from 1990 onwards, apparently owned by us through the shareholder executive, i.e. a publicly owned company, uh, but selling its own advertising. And now it's owned by the government, but it's a commercial operation but it's supposed to be a not-for-profit organization so there's 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 a lot of ambiguities built into channel 4's position the good thing that could come out of this would be some clarity about that it may well be that at the end of the review people say well we adjust it but we don't we don't sell it off but we perhaps make it clearer what it's what what its public service return its duty is to the country it might be that that changes a bit. Do you think it could be, as people have said, a second Channel 5 if it ended up being privatised? Um, well, obviously that's what David Abraham is warning us about. What is going on at the moment is that slots that could be very commercial, the 7 to 8 hour, the 9 to 10, sometimes the 10 to 11, they are running programmes which on the face of it are not commercial. They're commercial programmes are there too, but they actually put 
a lot of public service programming in the, the main schedule, the, the prime time schedule. That's the crucial thing that happens at the moment. That's what we get from them. Uh, so you do have to, we do have to bear that in mind when we think about any changes. And I am a big fan of Channel 4 News, I'll say for the record. Speaking of which, actually, uh, talk of journalism, uh, this week we got the sad news that the BBC reporter Sue Lloyd-Roberts had died of cancer at the age of 64. Uh, Maggie, can you tell us a little bit about her career? Well, I mean, she started at uh, ITN. She's been uh, an inspirational a freelance really um, going after really tough stories foreign stories I remember one too where she signed off from um, it was an ITV news 10 o'clock report saying Sue Lloyd Roberts with the disconnected and this was a program about people who were so poor that they were being having their electricity cut off I think this was back in I don't know harsh times in the 90s or something like that and she she, she had this extremely uh, I don't know very clear enunciation she was absolutely focused on injustice and uh, stories that, you know, really moved you. Uh, and she was just, I think, underneath it, a very steely, formidable woman, but with a heart of gold. OK, slightly unfair advantage to Maggie on the last two subjects, but Paul, you might have a slightly unfair advantage in the media quiz. Uh, because, as we've established, you were at MIPCOM, and this week the quiz is entitled MIPCOM or glitchy. Uh, we've I'm just, glitchy. You're, you're glitchy, are you? Uh, I'm going to read out the names of some programmes that have been pitched. Some of them were genuinely pitched at MIPCOM, where broadcasters and programme makers tout their wares. Some of them feature in a new ITV sketch show, the premise of which is made-up TV programmes, called Glitchy. Uh, so it's quickfire, just buzz in with your name when you know the answer. The winner is found not guilty of aiding and abetting a police officer to commit misconduct in a public office. Here is programme pitch number one. Is this MIPCOM or glitchy? Buzz in with your name. A social experiment come dating show called Bikini Island. Paul, MIPCOM. Correct, that was being touted at MIPCOM. It is a format based on a show that exists in Denmark. Here is pitch number two. A show where participants put everything they own into storage for one month and survive without their possessions. It's called Stripped. Maggie, I think that's perfectly possible, yes. So you're saying MIPCOM not glitchy? Um, Not glitchy, no. Yes, MIPCOM. Uh, You are correct, Maggie. It's one all. Uh, That is indeed a a genuine format being touted on the French Riviera, uh, despite the floods. Uh, Right, Okay. still all to play for then. Here is format number three. A fixed rig show with exclusive access to thousands of BT's public payphones in a show called 24 Hours in a Phone Box. Is it MIPCOM or is it glitchy? Oh, that's a hard one. I, I, I'm, what do you think, Maggie? Uh, I'll, say, I'll, say Maggie I'll say Maggie. Uh, I'll say... You'll say uh, MIPCOM. Mipcom or if you're yeah. going to say MIPCOM, I'll say glitchy and you're probably right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I don't think I am because there aren't that many phone boxes left anymore. Uh, Paul is right. Uh, it is from Glitchy. Oh, it is a made-up phone. Well, format. thank you for that. That was sort of a shared. I think that's one and a half each, actually. No, no, you're being generous. I, well, don't I, give I'm, away your advantage. I'm being Mr. Smooth you, you, today because, yeah. Maggie, you've been here the whole show. 2-1 uh, to me, I think. 2-1 to you, except, well, unusually for the media quiz, we have a fourth question. Oh, my goodness. So there's still a chance oh, of a tie. Maggie, we can still couple pull level. Here it is, format number four. A new structured reality format set in the Wirral called The Real Jockey Housewives of Birkenhead. Glitzy. You've got to say your name. Paul. Paul. 
Uh, well, Maggie, I'm afraid Paul has thoroughly trumped you. It is indeed a format from Glitchy, the new ITV2 show. Uh, but still, genuinely hard to decide between the two. Uh, so, Paul, congratulations, you're the winner. Thank you very much indeed. Um, I will enjoy my coffee, and thank you, sponsors, for buying my coffee. I'm really grateful. <laughs> and Maggie Brown, uh, you are by no means a loser. Please come back very soon. <laughs> uh, I certainly will. Thank you. Uh, you can find all of our previous instalments and get new ones downloaded automatically straight to your phone. Just head to themediapodcast.com. Today's show is dedicated to the following fantastic people who made it happen. They are Hannah Cottle, Thor Laser, Tom Blakeson and Jonathan Blunden and Andrew Barker, here comes that dedication, a retired mathematician and long-ago TV producer for the BBC at the Open University who is still shocked at how poor press regulation is and is pleased at how well broadcasting is regulated. That almost sounds like a pitch to be a guest on the show, Andrew. We might be in touch. Uh, a reminder that if you'd like to support the next episode, go to themediapodcast.com slash dedicate. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer, Matt Hill. The Media Podcast is a PPM production. Until next time, bye-bye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.